Do make sure you can see Genesis chapter 5, and let's pray together. Our loving Heavenly Father, as we've been looking at these early chapters of Genesis, uh, and as we look at the world around us, and as we look at our own hearts, Father, we cannot fail but realise that this world is a mess, that our hearts are full of sin, and that we need a saviour. Heavenly Father, we thank you this evening that you have spoken, that your words are the words of life, and that we can come to them now and hear you speak life to us. So we pray that you would help us by your spirit to listen to what you have to say to us this evening. For Jesus' name's sake. Amen. Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us. Above is only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. Imagine there's no countries. It isn't hard to do. Nothing to kill or die for. And no religion, too. Imagine all the people living life in peace. You may say I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope someday you'll join us and the world will be as one. So said John Lennon, and all of us, I think, like to imagine, don't we? All of us like to hope for a better world. All of us this evening will hope in all sorts of different things. Uh, Maybe this evening uh, you are hoping in some sort of Brexit deal. Uh, Maybe you are hoping in education and the raising of the next generation. Maybe you're just hoping that you'll have a good week at work or that half term will be a welcome break. All of us hope from the small things up to the big things. One author describes people as hope junkies. He writes, we all search for, long for and attach ourselves to some kind of hope. We hook our hope to something, get disappointed and then shop for hope again. The thing that we place our hope in will influence the way we interpret and respond to life. Hope, he says, is one of the most important lifelong journeys for every single human being. All of us hope. And the reason we hope, the reason that John Lennon wrote songs like Imagine, is that we live in a world after Genesis chapter 3. If you've been with us here for the last few evenings, you'll know that we've been working through these early chapters of the first book of the Bible, Genesis. We've been looking at the beginning of everything. And so in chapters 1 and 2, we were introduced to the creator God, the one who spoke the universe into existence and then created human beings to live in and enjoy the world he had created. But then we read in chapters 3 and 4 about humanity's rebellion against God. We saw the terrible consequences of people turning against God, the one who made them, and against each other. And so that brings us to chapter 5 and our passage this evening. Where in chapter 5, verse 1, we read, This is the written account of Adam's family line. 
If you can remember a few weeks ago, it was mentioned that the book of Genesis is structured around that little phrase, this is the account of, which means chapter 5 here begins a new section. A new section in which the author is essentially saying to us, now I'm going to tell you about Adam. I'm going to tell you about humanity and what life is like for people after the rebellion of chapter 3. This, this evening, is the account of humanity. And the first thing that we see in chapter 5 is that death is unavoidable. Death is unavoidable. Look at 5, verse 1. This is the written account of Adam's family line. When God created mankind, he made them in the likeness of God. He created them male and female and blessed them. And he named them mankind when they were created. The account of Adam has a positive start. We're reminded of how things were back in chapter 2. Remember, humanity bears God's image. They enjoy God's blessing. And then in verse 3, we see that they are fruitful. They, they multiply, just as God commanded them to. It's a positive start. But then, as we keep reading, things don't stay so positive. Verse 3, when Adam had lived 130 years... He had a son in his own likeness, in his own image, and he named him Seth. After Seth was born, Adam lived 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Adam lived a total of 930 years, and then he died. Just three verses into the account of Adam, and we're reminded where we are. We're reminded that we're no longer in the Garden of Eden. And that the curse of death is now a reality. The consequence of Adam's sin has finally caught up with him. And he dies. He dies just as God said he would. And then as we read through Adam's family tree, we see those four words come again and again and again. So verse 5, Adam lived 930 years And then he died. Verse 8, Seth lived 912 years. And then he died. Verse 11, Enosh lived 905 years. And then he died. Verse 14, Kenan lived 910 years. And then he died. Verse 17, Mahalalel lived 895 years. And then he died. The message is clear, isn't it? Death is not just God's judgment on Adam. But on the whole human race, it is unavoidable. 100% of people die. And that means death is a reality that every single one of us has to come to terms with. Now, some people, they do that. They come to terms with death, or they try to, by thinking of death as a positive thing. So Oscar Wilde wrote this about death. Death must be so beautiful to lie in the soft brown earth with the grasses waving above one's head and to listen to silence, to have no yesterday and no tomorrow, to forget time, to forget life, to be at peace. Or that great philosopher, Albus Dumbledore, 
who said, after all, to the well-organized mind, death is but the next great adventure. Sounds lovely, doesn't it? It sounds wonderful, but, but for those of us who have experienced death, those who have had someone close to you die, well, then you'll know that death is not beautiful. It isn't a great adventure. It's devastating. It's painful. It isn't right. And that's because death isn't what we were originally designed for. It isn't a good thing. Other people maybe don't view it as so positive, and so they try just to kind of ignore it, to to avoid thinking about death altogether. They distract themselves from it. Apparently, today, we check our smartphones around 81,500 times a year. That's about once every four minutes of every waking hour of the day. There are all sorts of reasons for that statistic, but one big reason is distraction, isn't it? Distraction from work. Distraction from people. And perhaps more subtly, distraction from our own mortality. One author puts it like this. Our ever-present phones offer endless diversions, from 10-second downloads to one-touch purchases. Our pings, alerts, and push notifications all redirect us from our greatest needs and realities. He goes on to say, the reality is that deep down there is a part of me that is scared that if I'm out of sight, I'll be out of mind, and I won't matter anymore. In a sense, this is one dimension of the looming fear of death that most of us never want to wrestle with. And so every day we jump back into the hamster wheel of our digital distractions to muffle that reality. We pretend death is a good thing, or we just distract ourselves from it. But Genesis 5 is written to remind us that death is real, and it is not good. Death should remind us that the world is not as it should be. It should remind us of our rebellion against God. It should remind us of our sin. And that brings us to the second thing we see in our passage this evening, that sin is undeniable. Sin is undeniable. Look at chapter 6, verse 1. When human beings began to increase in number on the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of humans were beautiful and they married any of them they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with humans forever, for they are mortal. Their days will be 120 years. Now it's worth acknowledging right from the start here that these are pretty tricky verses to understand. And the commentators have come up with all sorts of different explanations for what's actually going on. So who are the sons of God described here in verse 2? Some suggest that they are human kings, rulers, who are abusing their position of power, claiming any women that they fancy, that they like the look of, whether married or not. 
Others say that these are fallen angels, demons, who inhabited men. Uh, these demons, well, they were, they were marrying human women and having children with them. Children who may or may not be the Nephilim described in verse 4. There doesn't seem to be any clear-cut answers to those questions, but whatever the details, it is clear that God is not pleased with what is going on. Yet again, humanity is rebelling against its creator, and so God acts in judgment. He cuts human life short to 120 years. And just like we saw with Adam, this judgment is not immediate, but it does come. Within a few generations, human life is restricted to what we know it to be today. God restricts human life. He can't let people go on living. They're too corrupt, too wicked, too sinful. And so we see in verse 5, The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all of the time. A few weeks ago, back in chapter 1, God looked at the world he created and he saw that it was good. He looked at humanity, the pinnacle of his creation, and he saw that they were very good. But now, just a few chapters later, God looks at what he has made and he sees how great the wickedness of the human race had become. And as we turn on our television or open our newspaper, I don't think it's hard to agree with verse 5, is it? This week I read an article that suggested there had been around 106 chemical weapon attacks in the Syrian war so far. 106 times some people decided that the best thing to do, the right thing to do, is to drop chemical weapons on civilian men, women, and children. We can look at the world, and we can agree with verse 5, can't we? But actually, I don't think that's the point of verse 5. You see, verse 5 isn't talking about individual acts of evil. It's not even talking about particularly evil individuals. Now, do you see the, verse, uh, the evil in verse 5 is universal. God saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become. Now, this is talking about all people. It's talking about your best friend. It's talking about your mum and your dad. It's talking about your husband and your wife and your children. It's talking about the person sitting next to you this evening. And it's talking about you. This is not particularly wicked people. This is all people. And so how does God describe all people? He saw that, the, that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. God says every inclination, every part of us is corrupted by sin. 
The reformer John Calvin put it like this. He said, the whole man is overwhelmed as by a deluge from head to foot so that there is no part that is immune from sin. Now, of course, humans are capable of doing good things. But even those good things are tainted by pride, by selfishness, and by self-glory. Even the good things that we do and, and create are twisted and used for wickedness. So think of something like technology, the internet. That is a good thing made by people with creative minds, given to them by God and, and put to good use. But then one in five smartphone searches are for pornography. And one in three teenagers have been threatened on social media. And so do you see, everything, even the good things, are twisted by sin. Every intention, every inclination we have is corrupted. And it's every inclination of the thoughts of the heart. In other words, God isn't just concerned with our outward actions, the things that people can see. He sees our hearts. He sees our hidden desires, our perverted and twisted thoughts. He sees the things that we would never in a million years want other people to know about ourselves. He knows our hearts, and he knows they are sinful. It's the thoughts of the heart, and it's all of the time. I think there's a temptation for us to treat sin as though it were the exception rather than the rule. And so we tell ourselves that we're having a bad day, that we were tired, stressed. We wouldn't normally react like that. We don't normally sin like that. We don't normally talk like that. I heard about someone who recently said, I'm not really that selfish. In fact, I'm only selfish when I'm around other people. When I get away by myself and do the things I like to do, I'm not selfish at all. Oh, we can laugh, can't we? But we do that all of the time. I know I'm not that bad, really. Only when I'm around so-and-so. Only when I have a bad day. But verse 5 says no. No, every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. And so the point here is not that humans are incapable of doing good. No, remember verse 1 of chapter 5. We are still made in the image of God. But it's that everything that we do, however good is always tainted by sin, always corrupted by wrong motives and wrong desires. Our hearts are incapable of doing anything with 100% purity. That, says God, is the state of humanity. And it means that we are incapable of putting ourselves right. Which brings us back to that question of hope. You see, we hope for a better world because, well, we see and experience the effects of this sin in the world around us and in our own hearts. But the big mistake we make is in thinking that we can sort out the mess. We fail to recognize that we are part of the problem. 
And so we can't be the solution. Sin is a human problem. It's a problem that we cannot solve. And it's a problem that in the end leads to God's judgment. Look at verse 6. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the, the, the human race I have created, and with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground. For I regret that I have made them. It's strong language, isn't it? It's emotive language. God regrets that he has made humanity. They have rebelled against him and become utterly wicked. And so his right and reasonable response is judgment. He will wipe humanity from the face of the earth. That is what our sin and rebellion deserves. We're going to think a bit more about that judgment next week as we look at the flood. But for now, Genesis 5 and 6, well, they paint a bleak picture of humanity, don't they? Death is unavoidable. Sin is undeniable. Humanity is destined for death and judgment, and there is nothing that we can do to put it right. John John Lennon can imagine all that he likes. But left to itself, humanity will never live in peace with God or with each other. It's a bleak picture. It's bleak, but, but even in these devastating chapters, there is a glimmer of hope. There is hope. Just look back at chapter 5 and verse 21 with me. Chapter 5, verse 21. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he became the father of Methuselah. After he became the father of Methuselah, Enoch walked faithfully with God 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Enoch lived a total of 365 years. Enoch walked faithfully with God. Then he was no more because God took him away. In the middle of a chapter full of death, there is a glimmer of hope. Enoch didn't die. And then at the end of chapter 6, just after God announces that terrible judgment on humanity, we read in verse 8, 6 verse 8, but Noah found favour in the eyes of the Lord. We're not given a great deal of detail about these men in these verses, Enoch and Noah. But notice what the author does say about them. Enoch, in verses 23 and 24, is repeated, walked faithfully with God. And in 6 verse 9, we read that Noah did the same. And so even in the devastation of sin and death, there's a glimmer of hope for those who walk faithfully with God. And so that's the big question, isn't it? What does it mean to walk faithfully with God? Turn with me as we come towards the end to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews 11, if you've got a Bible, a church Bible, it is on page 
1209, Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 5. Hebrews 11 verse 5. By faith, Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. For before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please God. Because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. What does it mean to walk faithfully with God? Well, Hebrews 11 tells us that first of all, it means believing that God exists. It means believing in the God of Genesis 1 and 2, the creator and sustainer of the universe, the one who gives us life and breath and everything else in this world. It means believing in God. Uh, Secondly, it means that God rewards those who seek him. Did you see that? It's believing that The creator God is also the good and rightful judge of his world. He's the one who blesses those who listen to him and seek to live in the light of his word. Enoch believed those things. Enoch had faith in God. He walked faithfully with his God and so death was not the end for him. And the same is true for us here this evening. The same except that we are in a far more privileged position than Enoch. You see, for us here and now, God has revealed himself fully and finally in his son, the Lord Jesus. Jesus is the word of God made flesh. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the one who said, those who have seen me have seen the Father. And so believing that God exists means believing in God as he has revealed himself in his Son. And Jesus is also the good and rightful judge of his world. He is the one who promises to reward those who earnestly seek him, who come to him in faith. He's the one who said, very truly I tell you, Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged but has crossed over from death to life. To those who earnestly seek Jesus, those who admit their sin and put their faith in him, well, Jesus promises forgiveness rather than judgment, life rather than death. And so all of us this evening put our hope in something, don't we? All of us put our hope in something. But the question is where? Where can we find hope, real hope, in a world full of sin and death? We could listen to John Lennon, couldn't we? We could hope in ourselves. That's what the world would tell us. Trust in yourself. Have hope in yourself. Hope that one day humanity will sort itself out despite the evidence of all the centuries before us. Or we can come to Jesus in faith. 
We can seek him. We can hope in the one who stood outside his friend's tomb and said, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Let's pray that we be people who put our hope in Jesus. Let's pray together. Our loving Heavenly Father, we, we thank you that faith in Jesus transforms us. Father, thank you that by trusting in Jesus, we can be taken from death to life. From judgment to forgiveness and restoration as one of your children. Father, in a world that offers us hope in so many different places, and with hearts that are tempted to hope in ourselves, we pray that you would help us, Father. You would change us so that we are people who hope in Christ and Christ alone, knowing that he is the only one worth hoping in. Father, we pray this for his name's sake. Amen.